0: Interesting study taking a look at air pollution levels and substance use. The budget, of course, coming down yesterday. What does it mean when it comes to inflation in our country and defense spending in our country? And the war in Ukraine is being called the smartphone war by some. We're having instant access to video and images. An interesting study um, that was uh, just released recently uh, just published, as a matter of fact, and it it, it draws an interesting link that never even crossed my mind. It it took a look at air quality and emergency department visits in Edmonton, and it found there could well be a link between air pollution and increased hospital admissions for substance use disorders. Why would that be? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with Dr. Brian Rowe. He's a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alberta, and he one of the doctors involved in the study. Dr. Rowe? thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Shay. So, I mean, this is a really interesting study, and it's a link that I never even thought to explore. Basically, what you did is analyze the number of ER admissions or, or cases and, and compared them with air pollution. Was it really just that simple? Well, um,
1: yeah, it's, uh, it's it sounds simple, but it was very complex. Yeah, There's a lot to go through, right? Y- yeah. So essentially what we've been doing over a number of decades is looking at emergency department visits and correlating those and linking them to air quality indicators like uh, carbon monoxide, nitric oxide, sulfur dioxide in particular matter. And, um, you know, these are large administrative databases that um, provinces collect uh, on a regular daily basis to to look at health indicators. But the linked to air quality is something that's uh, emerging as an important contribution. We think about it mostly in, uh, with respect to lung conditions. Sure. So for example, asthma, COPD, and pneumonia, how, to, how does bad air quality affect your lungs? But um, that's a local effect and, and these these uh, small molecules and particles can be absorbed into your body and cause a systemic reaction. So it goes through your body and causes um,
0: health effects to occur outside of the lungs and the heart. Interesting, because you're right. When we talk about air quality, we tell people to stay inside, avoid exercise, especially if you have lung conditions or breathing issues. So, I mean, and that part, you know, makes sense to all of us. We can understand why. Um, But the affecting of behavior, is there any idea why? Why air quality may have an effect on behavior? Yeah, well, so these molecules and
1: particles get absorbed into your body, and they're considered pro-inflammatory, so they cause inflammation in your body. And um, the best example of inflammation are things like conditions like arthritis, um, you know, uh, that uh, causes inflammation of the joints or uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and colitis, which causes inflammation in the bowel. So these, this inflammatory reaction is a very important part of how people stay well. Um, so, infl- decreasing your inflammation overall is uh, important. So, inflammation of the of the brain is thought to be one of the mechanisms. Um, these these molecules can dysregulate the uh, release of neurotransmitters in your brain, and there's some evidence that they might be able to um, they may be able to change the tolerance to, say, for example, drugs and medications. So, these are complex theories Uh, they're being investigated and what we know is that at least in animal models there's evidence that exposing animals to uh, air pollution at the levels that we're exposed to in adults uh, causes them to have behavioral problems so there there is experimental evidence in animals there's this observational Uh, correlation in adults and and children. So uh, I I think it's a real uh, phenomenon and it's been demonstrated
0: repeatedly around the world. So are you saying there's a physiological response, you know, an actual, because of the inflammation and all the rest, that might cause something here, but also a psychological one that we've seen in animals where they actually do, they feel differently psychologically due to air pollution and may seek out substances for that?
1: Yeah. So in the animal models, it's it's more mood disorders. So okay. uh, they get depression and anxiety. They they don't eat uh, the same way. Um, but it, it, at least in the correlations that have been explored with Health Canada, drug abuse, drug use and uh, abuse um, is correlated with air pollution. We're not entirely sure of the mechanism, uh, but I think it's it's important to recognize that. You know, these are large databases, and if there was a lot of noise and not really much association, you wouldn't see these these um, correlations. But the fact that we see them suggests to us that they're real. They've been repeated elsewhere, and now we're finding the me- – we're looking for the mechanisms. And it's not entirely clear uh, what all of the mechanisms are, but um, some of them that I've just described are, are being explored uh, by basic scientists around the world.
0: So so doctor, where do we go from here? I mean, this seems to be fascinating in terms of opening up a lot of avenues for exploration in terms of people living in cities, people living in different places where pollution is really high. I mean, what can we do with this? Where do you think the next step is with this kind of research?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we know is that the data that was used was collected from the Edmonton zone in 1992 to 2002. So, we're Twenty years later, yeah we don 't think it invalidates the results, but there's certainly um, uh, you know, new data that 's available, so it would be important to repeat this. Um, we also had the pandemic for two years, and we 're still feeling the effects of that and during the pandemic, less driving, less industry, less air travel, far less pollution around the world so did that if, if in fact this is a cause and effect, we should have seen a reduction in Uh, In some of these presentations, right, it would make sense that if the air quality is better um, and and this is actually a direct effect, then we should see decreases in presentations for some of these conditions. We know stroke is associated with poor air quality. We know heart, heart attacks are associated with poor air quality there should be a reduction in those events and that's work that's ongoing now. Um, I think we we need to look for ways to protect humans from uh, poor air quality and I know in Ontario they closed the coal burning power plant in Atacocan which is in the far north of Ontario and it improved the air quality in southern Ontario because particulate matter from power plants uh, particularly fossil fuel burning power plants is a real problem and so when we see that, we should
0: investigate the the changes in these presentations to the emergency department. Very, very interesting work, Doctor. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. Have a good day. You too. That is Dr. Brian Rowe, who is a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alberta. We are in a time of, you know, soaring inflation. We've talked about it quite a bit here on the show. Uh, it's higher than we've seen in decades. We know as a result, the Bank of Canada has started off on a mission to, to fight back against it. That'll mean higher interest rates. It already does, and it, they're only going to go up from here. Um, that's the lever the Bank of Canada can pull. Central Bank and the government often work together, you know, a bit of a shared direction. And Christopher Freeland, to be fair, said just a few months ago, we will be equal partners with the Bank of Canada in trying to deal with inflation. So did this budget help them, hurt them? Did it do anything? We'll find out. Um, We're going to chat right now with Kevin Page, who is the founding president and CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Shea. So, so this budget yesterday, um, we saw a, a reduction in spending based on what we've seen over the last couple of years. Just your overall impression? Did you expect to see what you saw yesterday, or were you surprised by anything?
2: Yeah, it, um, we definitely saw it's a it's a small budget, and with respect to you know the amount of new spending, um, and you know we could talk a bit about what would be the appropriate benchmarks. I think it, it was. I think the, the modesty of this budget you know, relative to what we, you know, business communities were concerned about, a lot of deficit spending, which would have boosted inflation, I think the modesty and, and maybe even the responsibility is probably the surprise.
0: Um, Yeah, it was a very small budget. Uh, When we take a look at, uh, you know, if we deal just with inflation off the top here, we know it's, it's sort of the overriding issue. How much of an impact do you think the climate that we're living in in terms of, you know, inflation, supply chains, pandemics, just all the uncertainty around it, how much does that shape what the government does? Doesn't it make it a lot tougher to budget for all of us, including the federal government?
2: Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's I think, you know, I think Canadians uh, really from across the country have started, I've been feeling the squeeze yeah. you know, in recent months just because of, you know, the, the really quite dramatic increase in consumer price inflation over the past year. And I think that the yeah, unfortunate part is it, it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse because of what is happening in, in Europe is, with respect to the Russia uh, Ukraine war, which, which is going to push up commodity prices, it will help some of our producers for sure. And that's the first round effect. Economists call that a terms of, terms of trade effect. And, but the second round effect really is, is the hit on the consumers. And that's on real personal disposable incomes. There's a big squeeze coming, unfortunately, for Canadians. And, um, and we, we should brace ourselves for it. And it could mean higher than expected interest rates.
0: Um. Is there an expectation that the government can do anything in terms of dealing with that? Should we have looked for more in the budget? Were you looking for more in the budget yesterday to try and handle this inflationary pressure that we all see coming?
2: Yeah, I mean, we'd like to think that the government can, you know, uh, is the creator of most problems and that they could solve most right. of these problems. Yeah. But it's probably, we'll honestly say, I don't think it's really the case. Um, I mean, a lot of this inflation that we're experiencing have been experiencing over the past year. Like you know, economists would say it comes from the supply side. To all those disruptions that have taken place, um, really, you know, uh, as a result of social distancing, the lockdown, really, the global economy. And then, and there's a component, a piece as well that just the governments obviously put enormous fiscal supports in, which has kind of boosted demand. But now we're facing this sort of second supply shock, which is Russia, Ukraine, which is going to push up you know, prices you know, at the pump. It's going to push up food prices. And you know, we've been experiencing now for a number of years shelter prices. So can governments solve those problems by themselves? No. In some ways, like they're generated by forces, global forces. Um, is there's a limit the government doesn 't have the largesse, really to kind of you know just to, you know to ease everybody 's pain um, yeah there's some measures in the budget to soften the blow but it, it, they can 't you know we 're going to face tighter budgets.
0: Um, When we take a look at things, and this was a message from the government yesterday in terms of, you know, where we are with spending, it's always debt to GDP, debt to GDP. Um, And uh, Christian Freeland saying, that's our benchmark. That's the line we won't cross. And we're continuing to see that drop. So we feel good. We feel we're being fiscally prudent. We're doing what we need to do to make sure that we don't get ourselves in trouble. Do you agree with what she's saying? I think it goes down to 41.5% in five years.
2: Yeah, and I think that was some of the positive surprise. So, like, and people were thinking that, you know, with um, the liberal NDP agreement and, you know, kind of talk around um, new programs like pharmacare and dental care, and um, I think there's the concerns as well, not concerns, but, you know, the, potentially the need to increase defense spending significantly to deal with NATO commitments that, oh, my God, like, this is going to be, a, there are going to be large deficits and all going to be deficit finance. Instead, of what we saw was a pretty thin budget on spending, um, and, you know, deficits declining faster than what they were, you know, projected in, you know, in the fall update of last year. Debt to GDP ratios, you know, you know, declining, as you said, from about 46, 47% this year to 42% five years out. Like, I think the bond markets are probably going to say, well, wow, that's that, you know, this is a good fiscal track. And then the issues are going to be, can we hold it? And part of that is going to be the global environment, which will happen, you know, know, by these broader forces. And part of it will be, like, can the government just hold on to those purse strings? Or will they want to, you know, know, release the floodgates with respect to spending?
0: Yeah, when we talk about spending, um, you know, we are still spending more than we're bringing in. But uh, the government also saying, you know what, when we talk about things... You know, inflation and the way that the economy is going right now. I mean, it's 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 superheated. A lot of people say we have record low unemployment. So the government's saying, you know what? We're in a position where the economy is going to grow so much that we can absorb some of this funding or the spending that we're talking about here, and it's not going to be as big a concern. Um, do you agree with their end? And I think they said their rate of inflation for this year was three point nine. It's closer to six. So do you agree with their calculations? yeah i think
2: yeah, i think the assumptions are optimistic like you know the okay. planning assumptions the economic assumptions they they you know it's not you know the government basically takes an average of a private sector of private sector forecasts so you can't say that there's necessarily deliberate political bias in those numbers but it's an older you know survey of private sector forecasts it was done in february so it was done prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you know, and so prior to a lot of those sanctions, it, the, the two of which have really pushed up commodity prices. So you're right. I think the inflation number is, you know, is going to be much higher than what was embedded in that you know that forecast 3.9% average for CPI. It'll be a lot higher than that. And I think there's going to be pressure on the Bank of Canada to kind of raise interest rates maybe faster than they were anticipating just months ago. And both of which are going to put a real squeeze on personal disposable incomes. And that'll hurt families.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's not good news. Uh, Last one here. Like I said, Christian Freeland said they wanted to be equal partners with with Bank of Canada in dealing with our economic climate. What could they have done in this budget that would show they were interested in tackling inflation hand-in-hand with the Bank of Canada, if you will? What kind of levers can the federal government pull on that, Like you said, I mean, a lot of it's beyond their control, but are there things they could have done?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, they could have made a big mistake, which was, you know, um, which was, you know, significantly, you know, um, moving forward with kind of programs that would really boost what economists would call demand or consumption you know, in the next year or two. Like with these tight labor markets, it was inflation high and rising. Like you don't want to have a lot. You don't want to pull out the credit card and say, let's go, yeah, let's yeah. spend, spend, spend. I think so. Basically, what we saw was like they said, no, you know, we're going to be we're going to try to be prudent. We're not going to boost spending uh, in the short term. There'll be some measures, and a lot of these measures will impact more, you know, years three, four, five in that planning output, and they'll be more focused on investment, increase the stock of housing, invest money into research. Those things will boost the supply side of the economy
0: and growth down the road, but without causing a lot more inflation pressure in the short term. Uh, Kevin, great analysis. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time honored to be with you Shay. Thank you sir. That is Kevin Page who is the founding president and CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Right now, we're going to talk about one aspect of the budget that uh, I was interested in yesterday, and that's defense spending. And we did see an increase in defense spending, but to be fair, it's modest. Um, it's not, you know, the benchmark for a lot of people is the 2% of GDP. That's the NATO obligation. Canada currently, I think, is about 1.3, 1.35, somewhere in that neighborhood. And based on what we saw in the budget yesterday, that will go up to one5 in five years. So we're still not getting to the 2% mark. And then I have some questions about what we did announce we're spending money on. So to walk through it, we have Dr. Craig Stone joining us. He's an Emeritus Associate Professor of Defense Studies, Department of Defense Studies at the Canadian Forces College. Uh, Dr. Stone, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Just um, your reaction. I mean, we are seeing an $8 billion increase over five years, mind you, and it still won't bring us close to the 2%, 1.5%. Did we do enough yesterday? Were you looking for more?
3: So I don't know that I was looking for more so much as I was looking for a bit more detail on what they're actually going to spend that money on. Uh, when you look at the actual budget uh, data, it's it's got the $7.2 billion uh, in their sort of column on reinforcing national defense uh, for... D and D proper, mm-hmm. it's got six point one billion plus another one point four billion uh later. Uh but not a lot of detail on what they're gonna spend that money on. And in fact the government probably has spent more money on defense in the previous two years in terms of over and above what was announced in the defense policy than's actually in this budget, despite this notion that everyone has that because of the changing security environment with Russia invading Ukraine, et cetera, that there should have been more.
0: Is there we're a difference? Uh, sorry, Doctor, I'm just wondering, is there a difference? Like When we talk about, okay, we're increasing defense spending, well, some of the money that was being lumped in with this increasing in defense spending goes to revamping the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces. Now, I'm not saying that's not important, but to me that's a different discussion than um, when we're talking about the forces and you know especially in light of what's happening in ukraine um is it fair to make a distinction between that kind of spending and you know weapons and troops and equipment
3: so it is and when you look at the the budget detail there is money uh, as part of that eight billion dollar number that the government's uh, putting out there uh, for changing the culture There's actually a a section in the budget that talks about supporting Ukraine uh, in terms of what they're going to do. So some of that is uh, supporting the mission we already have there, but some of that is essentially just going to be uh, flow-through money of uh, $500 million for us to go out and buy equipment that we're then going to send to the Ukraine. So yes, it's going to be money that's going to defense, but it's actually not going to add to the Canadian capability because it's just uh, going to support the Ukraine. And that's kind of laid out in the budget document, but you, you kind of need to have an idea of how the government presents this in the documents and know what it means, because you you actually have to have some clarity and be able to talk to someone to understand what all this really means.
0: Yeah, and I think the the key word there is capability. I think that's the word I was struggling to try and find, and I'm glad you did, because that's what it's about, is increasing the capability of the Canadian forces, to me anyway. um, And do you think, like, what would you have liked to have seen yesterday in that regard?
3: So I would have liked to have seen a bit of clarity on some things that they've been talking about, uh they talked about it in the last budget so when you think about so what is what is it that Canada's going to spend for NORAD renewal and replacing the north warning system yeah so they introduced that issue last year in budget 2021 with some money to start looking at that issue it's been a year there's been work done but there's kind of no detail on whether any of this uh, money that's allocated in this year's budget is going to go for that or not and you know the experts that have written about this issue of North Warning system replacement, you know, put out the number of 11 billion dollars and Canada's share of that, if we follow the 6040 split of the previous sharing arrangement, would be four and a half billion dollars. Now there's no there's no more uh, accuracy to that than that's kind of what the experts are looking at for what it was going to cost. There's been no agreement on what it's going to cost yet. There's been no agreement with the U.S. that they're actually going to pay 60% of it, because that's what's up for negotiation.
1: Okay, gotcha. Is
3: that, that kind of detail that talks about specifically what are they going to spend money on, as opposed to uh, we're just adding money to to be looked at.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that. You know, we're increasing spending. Okay, on what? Well, that remains to be seen. I mean, I think that, that was actually said by some senior government officials yesterday. Well, we're not 100% sure yet. We've got to wait and see what happens with this and what happens with that. Um, what about the Arctic? I know there was some talk about that, and I know there's a lot of people that are pe- paying very close attention to what's going on there and, and the fact that Canada needs to bolster our defenses in the north.
3: So that speaks to, in part, the, the requirement to replace the north warning system. Okay. Because the original north warning system... Uh, was established uh, when it was just radars for an air threat. Since then, NORAD has taken on a maritime uh, security role. Yeah, um, Russia has changed its kind of approach to things, which, as our northern neighbor, um, causes some issues around how are we going to actually guarantee our sovereignty and our security in the north. So there are other things that will go into a discussion about north warning system replacement or renewal and NORAD renewal above and beyond just we're going to replace the the radars. How much of that is Canadian specific, which means the Americans really shouldn't be paying for it. So, for example, if we want to have a deep water port that's operable 12 months a year in the north, So have Canadian Forces ships and Coast Guard ships up there, what does that mean? What's that going to cost? Yeah. Those are the types of things that, when you look at the North and security, and that is not even adding issues around climate and the environment, which have to be dealt with, and issues around Indigenous relations.
0: Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Last question for you here. What about cybersecurity? And That was a big mention, and and there's new cyber forces being involved. Um, How important is that to our national defense? So
3: it's important. In the budget, that money that's identified for cybersecurity is is actually going to the communications security establishment, which is actually not part of the Department of National Defense. Oh, okay. They, They report to the minister... So in the government's accounting structure, uh, they report to the minister and their spending is in the public accounts under national defense, but they aren't part of national defense. So that money, although it's going to security, it's not going to the Department of National Defense.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So that's a little, okay. Which, Which is not to say that
3: at the end of the day, when they decide how they're going to do this, CSE is not the only department in government that has concerns about cybersecurity. But they're probably the lead agency
0: for it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. All right, Doc, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Okay. Thanks very much. You bet. That's Dr. Craig Stone, who is an Emeritus Associate Professor of Defense Studies, Department of Defense Studies at Canadian Forces College. So I think that, I mean, the headline when it comes to defense is, and I think, you know, the goal of that 2% of GDP spending on defense Um, to meet your NATO obligations, we were at 1.34%. And at the end of five years, with this new $8 billion in spending, we'll be all the way up to 1.5%. So we're still still not at that 2% benchmark. And if you take a look at it, we've talked to a lot of people on the air over the past weeks and months, uh, ever since this situation developed in Ukraine, about Canada's defense capabilities. And they said, you know what, even if we just went to that 2%, we would still be way behind. We have a lot of catch-up to do because we've fallen very far behind in terms of our defense spending. If we're, if we're at 1.34 with increased spending since 2017, um, where were we before? And how long have we sort of not been spending the amount of money that would have kept us where we wanted to be or needed to be to be part of NATO and a functioning member? So there's not only meeting the 2% now, it's catching up for all the years that we didn't. So we're still well, well short of that. conversation about what's being called, in some cases, the smartphone war. Now, I was just telling you a few minutes ago about the latest atrocity that has people horrified uh, to come out of Ukraine. A missile hit a train station where um, thousands of people had flocked in order to flee the country. Um, Ukrainian authorities say that 50 people, at least 50, died in the strike, and they warn they expect to find more evidence of war crimes. Um, Now, there's photos, there's video from the scene showing bodies covered in tarps on the ground, and this is the most chilling part, the remnants of a rocket with the words for the children painted on it in Russian. Now, all kinds of questions about why that would be painted, who painted it. I mean, this is the situation that we're in because we've got almost instant access through Our smartphones, everybody's got a camera, and this information, if you want to see this, it's very easy. Go on Twitter. Go on, I'm sure, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. You will see it. It's there. It's instantaneous, and it's being spread around the world, um, and it's really changing the way that we're Experiencing what's happening. And that's what we're going to talk about now with Mark uh, Kansian, if I'm saying that correctly, a retired colonel with the U.S. Marine Corps, a senior advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Colonel. Um, colonel, thanks colonel, thank for having you for me on time. the show. Yeah, thank Kansian, did I say that correctly? You did. Thank you. Awesome. Excellent. Okay. Glad to hear it. Um, okay. Let's take a look at this. this. I mean, this kind of access to information, right? I mean, basically, that's what it is. It's it's instantaneous. Um, it's just, it's constant. It's really unprecedented, isn't it?
4: Well, it is. I, I think we also keep in mind that this is part of a long-term trend. That is, um, the increasing amount of information about conflict that's available to Books, you know, beginning back you know in the 19th century when the first photographs uh, came out, and then you know you have moving photos, and then in Vietnam you have TV. Yep. Arguably, it's accelerated now because you have so many people out there, as you said, you know, with smartphones who are able to post information. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have to remember that you can distribute the information much more rapidly. Not only are we uh, not only their pictures, but they go around the world instantaneously. So you can have um, mm-hmm groups of people analyzing what's happening. As it happens, I I received a number of photographs uh, and was asked, you know, is this from a rocket? Is this from an uh, artillery shell? Is this from an aircraft bomb? And we could do that within an hour or two, something that in the past would take days or
0: weeks to do. We're seeing some of the footage actually being distributed by soldiers, which I find absolutely mind boggling. I mean, people who are actually involved in whatever the operation is, or, you know, they're either commenting throughout the video or they're filming it themselves. I mean, have we ever seen anything like that before? And what does that tell you?
4: Um, I mean, we haven't really seen anything like that before. I mean, you know, when you go in the past and you have. Um, soldiers would take pictures of themselves and send them back to family. But, of course, that's a long process. And the idea now that, you know, as events occur, as battles uh, unfold, people are taking pictures of it um, is really uh, quite extraordinary. And, you know, and I think that's going to be a permanent feature of warfare. The United States has tried to clamp down on that um, yeah. for uh, operational reasons, uh, not clear they're going to have a whole lot of success with everybody uh, having those um, you know those um, tools uh, available to them. But we do have to keep in mind though th- that the pictures come without context, and the open source analysts out there work very very hard to try to check on the on uh, the validity of the of the videos and you know where they are and what was going on and try to put a little context around it, but. We do need to be careful. You know, for example, we have this uh, we we frequently have uh, uh, Russian fire into cities, and you know, civilians are getting hurt. it's uh, deplorable. But what we don't know is you know whether there was a military target, uh, nearby that the Russians were aiming at, uh, and the civilians you know, were collateral damage, which doesn't excuse it, but it does put it in a little different context. If, you know, For example, across the street was an artillery park or something like that, and that's the part that, that
0: doesn't come out. And we have to be a little careful, recognizing that we only have a part of the story. That's what I wanted to ask you. Like, th- I'm sure you've seen it, um, the, the photos that are coming out from the Ukrainian uh, train station this morning yep. and and apparently and i saw it tweeted out by some ukrainian mps that i follow on twitter look at this missile the remnants of this missile has four of the children painted on it in russian we don't know who painted that i mean do, when you see something like that what what goes through your mind to try and analyze the picture the video whatever it is and sort of get an understanding of what it's telling us and what it might be telling us because somebody wants us to believe something
4: well, you know, there was open-source analysts out there who were really pretty good at trying to track things down, and of course, if we had the <clears throat> people on the ground, you know, they could look at the paint and you know see whether it was fresh and yeah. uh, you know where where you know whether you know were these uh, Russians who painted it, or was it someone who ran up afterwards and painted yeah. it on there? Um, and you know, we we really don't know. And again, that's why we uh, have to be uh, careful uh, here. We also have to be careful in that. You know, we're getting a close-up look of what war looks like. And in many ways, that's good. I mean, people now appreciate the destructiveness of war and the suffering of war at a a level that they didn't before. You know, it's one thing to read uh, something that says, you know, the Russian shelling caused widespread destruction and some civilian casualties. But then when you see it, you know, burned out buildings and civilians dead on the ground, you know, there's a whole different emotional reaction. And in many ways, that's good. We also have to be a little careful because, um, you know, sometimes people will say, we've got to do something. This is the time to to, take on Russia. And I say, well, we have to think about that real carefully before we, we start a war with a nuclear armed power. Now, you know, maybe someday we get there, but, you know, We have to think about that very calmly and, you know, put aside some of the emotion that goes with the pictures.
0: Um, Last one, and then I'll let you get out of here. We know that there's a lot of calls for somebody to be held accountable for what we perceive to be war crimes, um, atrocities, things like that. This video, these photographs, will those be... Will they form evidence, ultimately? I mean, do do we is this going to help in terms of making sure that people are held accountable if, indeed, war crimes have been committed? I mean, are we just gathering more and more evidence than we ever have before, too? Well, we
4: are, and, and these are clearly helpful in uh, targeting places where war crimes might have occurred, and there are groups on the ground, investigators, who will then go there and pick up the context that we've been talking about. So as a first step, this is uh, critical. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the end of the story. And if I could add one more, one more point that I think people haven't really appreciated, and that is that in our day-to-day lives, we run around and we take pictures and we post them, and it's very, very normal. One thing we haven't really thought about is, you know, if you are a Ukrainian behind Russian lines and you're running around taking pictures of Russian equipment and Russian troops and posting it online, there's a name for that. It's called espionage. And you have to be we have to be very careful that people don't inadvertently cross that line Mm -hmm. Uh, or if they do it. Well, they do it intentionally, but they don't do it inadvertently. And then, you know, we have, you know, what are allegedly right war crimes. And then the Russians get up there and say, hey, you know, this guy was taking pictures of our troops and sending them over to the Ukrainians so we could be attacked. No, that's he was a spy. Uh, So
0: people need to sort of keep that change in mind. People just don't understand that, though, do they? Colonel, I mean, we don't we don't have that kind of understanding. You just think you're grabbing your phone, you're taking a video. You don't realize some of the lines that are being crossed here.
4: Well, that's right, and that's why I, I, I
0: raised the point yeah. so you know people are more sensitive to it in the future. Makes great sense, uh, Colonel. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. That's Colonel Mark Kansian, a retired colonel with the U.S. Marine Corps, senior advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And, I mean, I don't know. Like, if you haven't seen this video footage, it's it's a, it's the remnants of a missile that struck this Ukrainian train station today. And it's a pretty big chunk of a missile, right? And it has written on the side of it what we're being told is Russian for, for the children.